to our dope village. Welcome to our second bonus episode of Laughter Permitted, dedicated to the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Today, we will be talking about transgender athletes and Title IX. And as we have seen, transgender athletes, as it relates to women's sports, has become a highly debated and polarizing topic. It is also a layered and nuanced topic. Our goal here is to create a safe space to ask questions and discuss topics like the history of transgender policy, the science involved, how ongoing legislation affects the trans and LGBTQ plus community, and what the future could look like for trans athletes. So for this episode, we welcome our ESPN colleague and award-winning journalist, Katie Barnes, who has reported extensively on this topic. In fact, they are writing a whole book on it. Katie, (laughs) thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think I need to bring you around to be my hype woman all the time. (laughs) Well, I could have gone much longer than that. That was my short version. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Katie, to start with, what is the connection between Title IX and transgender athletes? Oh, man. The question of the day, I think. (laughs) Uh, So Title IX, as we understand it, prohibits sex-based discrimination in education, including all education-based activities, which, of course, include sports. And so sex-based discrimination, there's this ongoing question about what does that mean and who does it apply to? So like when you ask the question about like, what is the importance of Title IX to the discussion? It is the place where this legal battle hinges in terms of the ability for transgender young people to access education and schools in an, in accordance with their gender identity. So like, it's why, you know, when we talk about transgender athletes and there's this whole elite conversation, well, the IOC has nothing to do with Title IX, but where the legal battle is happening is all around Title IX in terms of schools. So for example, right, Proponents of legislation that has passed, that has passed, um, that restricts transgender girls in particular from being able to play girls and women's sports, they say that they're doing so to protect Title IX because transgender inclusive policies that would allow transgender girls and women to participate in girls and women's sports without restriction or, frankly, just have a pathway to participate at all is in violation of Title IX. Now, Opponents of the legislation argue that the existence of that legislation is in violation of Title IX because Title IX protects girls and women, and that means all girls and women. Actually, it technically doesn't even say that. It protects all students from sex-based discrimination in our schools. So the question becomes, what's sex-based discrimination? And also, can your sex change over time? And so... If you are somebody who's assigned male at birth, does that designation follow you forever in schools in all contexts? There are a lot, there are some people who say absolutely it does. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what you do. That's just how it is because your chromosomes never change. And that's like in litigation, like literally in litigation. And then there are some people who are like, no, that's not, that's not what Title IX is meant to do. It's not what the law says. Um, and that actually, if you are assigned male at birth, like you still have protections under Title IX. If you are a transgender girl, you are a girl. Therefore, you have protections under Title IX. 
a lot of it comes down to like whether like what it is that you believe about sex and gender. Uh, and some of that is scientific and some of it, a lot of it is cultural um, and generational. And so it's one of the, I think the hardest things, it's just one of the hardest issues that we have right now. Um, but make no mistake, Title IX is at the center of this discussion um, and uh, certainly all of the legal, all the legal battles that are happening. Tell me if this sounds right, Katie. The hot spot in all of this debate is around people assigned male at birth who transition post-puberty as there is some scientific debate around how much you can reverse or mitigate the effects of testosterone once you have gone through puberty and hence the controversy and angst around Leah Thomas, the swimmer from University of Pennsylvania who swam her first few seasons on the men's team at UPenn and you, you've covered extensively. Uh, she then transitioned and now is on the women's swim team there and doing very well. And she is the most visible example at the moment. Is, is that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think at the moment is the important part, but I think puberty is a really messy sort of point within this discussion. And I also want to say that I think while there's absolutely, you know, that more difficult discussion happening at the elite level around um, what policy restrictions might be appropriate, et cetera, et cetera, which I know we'll get into there are a lot of conversations happening simultaneously and we often aren't making distinction between those conversations. Mm -hmm. So there's a discussion happening around elite sport. um, And I include NCAA division one in that category. And so you have elite sports, what policies exist, what policy should exist, how those have changed over time, why they exist. But then there's also all of these other categories of sport that are affected by what happens at the elite level and sort of that trickle down. And they're actually very different conversations as far as what competition category we're talking about. But generally speaking, yes, you are correct. And before we dive into issues, I think it would be helpful to talk about some terminology. What is the distinction between sex and gender identity and expression? So your sex is a mixture of um, different biological characteristics. So, you know, your internal reproductive organs, your chromosomes, your hormones, your secondary sex characteristics, and then your external genitalia. All of those characteristics work in concert together to combine what is commonly referred to as sex uh, or biological sex sometimes. Your gender identity is generally how you feel about your gender and who you are. Um, And then your expression is how you express that gender identity. And so for a lot of people, you know, your sex is assigned, let's say your sex is assigned female at birth, you have a woman gender identity and you express that gender identity in ways that are typically within a category that we'll describe as feminine right? So all those things work in ways that we assume to be true uh, when we think about those categories. And then there are folks for whom, for different reasons, um, you know, the, all of those things are not in what, a, we, what we would describe a typical alignment. You know, your gender identity may not be in alignment with your sex assigned at birth and or the way you express your gender identity uh, may not be in alignment with the assumptions that we make about what should happen with a man or woman gender identity. And then what does transgender mean? 
Yeah. So the easiest definition of somebody who is transgender um, is that their gender identity is not in alignment with their sex assigned at birth. Um, it's an umbrella term that is used to describe uh, binary transgender identities, like transgender man, a transgender woman, um, and then also describes a range of gender expansive identities, uh, like non-binary, uh, somebody who might be agender or bigender, just those different gender expansive terms used to describe gender identities that are not uh, the typical binary man or woman. Uh, so like I'm non-binary, I consider myself to be a part of the, of the greater transgender community. But, you know, that term is both used as a specific identity in terms of being a transgender man or transgender woman, and also in a more umbrella way. Super helpful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. The other thing is, I think sometimes people think this is a left versus right issue. And, um, and it often could be, but there are some women who are very left and some of the biggest advocates of Title IX, as we know, who think transgender women are not just hurting, but potentially destroying women's sports. And it's why you have, for example, the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, believing that uh, trans women at the elite level should be regulated more strictly to ensure and you know, a protected and equitable space for women to compete in. And we know, as you pointed out, Katie, Title IX was carved out 50 years ago as a separate sex-based competitive sports category for a very good reason. If women were constantly competing against men, they'd uh, men would have a biological and physiological advantages due to that testosterone. And, and so they carved out this space. Um, and in one of your outstanding pieces for ESPN on this topic, you wrote buried in the legalese and statements and motions and counter motions is a battle at the intersection of gender and sports and a fundamental question that will forever change title nine and women's sports. What does it mean to be a woman? Which I, I think is so fascinating and so layered, as we said. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I've often been asked like, well, what is this really about? And I've often described it as being, you know, the, at a fundamental level, the question is about who's allowed to be a woman and who's allowed to win. There are very strong disagreements about the answer to that question. And to your point, Julie, about, you know, this often being described as a left versus right issue, I think that goes back to my point earlier about how we're simultaneously having many different conversations. Mm -hmm. I, I actually think that the majority of people who are finding themselves uh, being at, like, at internally asking these questions around what it is that they believe about transgender athletes and their ability to access sports, um, you know, they kind of just want a place to sort of have a conversation that's honest, um, that pulls at all of these, you know, cultural I think, frankly, like some of it is cultural assumption that we have about sex and gender. Some of that is supported by science. Some of it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's all that going on. But then there's also the reality that this has become a very partisan issue when it comes to legislation. Mm -hmm. So legislatively speaking, it is very partisan. There's really no way around that. Mm -hmm. That legislative conversation, in my experience, doesn't match the conversation that's being had um, at kitchen tables, in bars, among friend communities and group yeah. chats, like that's not in sync with one another at all. When it comes to policy, when did discussion on transgender athletes start? Well, I mean, there's always been a desire to regulate the women's category 
since the creation of the women's category in sport. So that conversation has been in existence, you know, for as long as we've had women's sports. But we started to see a specific conversation around transgender athletes and what that would look like in the early 2000s, give or take. So the first time that there was a policy on the books at the Olympic level that regulated um, transgender athletes' ability to compete in the Olympics was, um, it was discussed and enacted in 2003, but was active for 04 in Athens. And then that policy was revisited in 2015, ahead of the 2016 Olympics. Um, and was changed. And in the middle of those two things, the NCAA enacted its first policy, which went into effect in 2011. And so then underneath that elite conversation, we also started to see a number of high school associations adopt policies, um, started to see NGBs adopt policies and align in alignment with what was happening at the international level, at the, at the Olympic level, and among the international federations. And so really within the last 20 years is when we started to see um, a significant increase in the discussion and also just in um, adoption of policy. And then within the last five years or so, uh, the amendment to those policies and the changes that we've seen in public discourse. Is there consistency among the policies or does every group get to make their own designation of what they want? That has changed, actually. If you had asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, yes, there's consistency. <laughs> um, that is not true now. So before November of 2021, the kind of working uh, policy, like accepted policy at the international level and at the uh, overall elite level was for transgender women to be eligible in the women's category. Uh, they needed to suppress their testosterone for 12 months. Uh, and then at the IOC used a level of uh, testosterone at 10 nanomoles per liter. That was the level that they used. Um, there was not a testosterone level at the um, NCAA in the NCAA's policy at that time. Um, and they used the 12 month of testosterone suppression. And then we saw different versions of those policies mimicked um, in some high school associations. And then also on you know, the NGBs and the international federations all kind of defaulted to where the IOC was. But that 12 month number was sort of the no, like just the accepted number. In November, the IOC said they announced this new framework with these guiding principles to empower the international federations to uh, develop their own policies that they acknowledge would vary sport by sport. Previously, we had just kind of had this blanket policy around testosterone mm -hmm. suppression. And now, you know, the expectation would be that well, maybe what is appropriate for swimming is not appropriate for archery, which may not be appropriate for rugby, which may not be appropriate for basketball. So there's this opening to develop a lot of policies at the international federation level. In the middle of the Leah Thomas controversy, the NCAA also announced a policy shift. This happened on January 19th of this year that basically said, whatever the national governing bodies are doing, we'll accept those policies. Mm -hmm. And then that kicked off its own <laughs> um, yep. development that didn't actually end up happening. Uh, so, but right now I would say we're in a, we're in a place from a policy perspective where we're going to see a lot of new policies be announced and released over the course of the next two years. By the time we get to Paris and then, and beyond, we're going to really see, I think, a very different policy landscape than one that we had two years ago. Let's go to the science of it. And again, if 
we were to narrow the focus, the gray area, in my opinion, seems to be at the elite level again, the science and data around the advantages as it relates to testosterone for trans women who transition post-puberty. So the Leah Thomas example. And given the advantages we know that exist from testosterone, should there be more restrictions? Hmm. I don't know that it's my place to necessarily say what policy should or should not be. I think at the international level, there is a movement that is in response to more science. And I think it's really important to to underscore that we don't have great science that answers the questions that we need to have answered in order to see really good policy. And so what I mean by that is, yes, we know that testosterone is athletically helpful. Like there's just no way around that. We know that that is the truth in terms of the physiological and metabolic benefits that it confers upon people who go through testosterone-driven puberty. We know this. I would hope that that's not exactly up for debate. So I want to say that very clearly. Mm -hmm. However, we don't know nearly as much about the effects of suppressing testosterone. And so there was a study that came out in 2021 that was essentially a literature review of all of these existing studies. It's done by Joanna Harper, um, who's getting her PhD at a university in uh, the UK and who's a you know, one of the foremost experts on this issue. And in that, basically what she found was that, you know, your VO2 max, your hemoglobin, all of that um, is heavily affected by testosterone suppression, but like strength declines are not at that, are not at the same level. Like suppressing testosterone doesn't necessarily alter a person's skeleton. So in sports where height and limb length are advantages, they will continue to be advantages. Right. And they they call that kind of a a legacy advantage, right. mm -hmm. Where it it's hard to, to measure how much that could be mitigated. Sure. There are just certain limits uh, to the answers that science can give us as well. I think that's important to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think if we're waiting for science to definitively answer this question, I think we'll be waiting a long time. And I also think that there will be certain answers that are not acceptable to everyone. I think for folks who fundamentally disagree on the question of inclusion, um, meaning whether people who really believe in transgender inclusion in women's sports and people who don't believe that that should happen, I don't know that there will ever be a scientific study on which those two parties will agree on what it actually says. What seems the most fair to you, Katie, regarding protecting that female sports category, which uh, there are many who are really wanting to do that and also being inclusive of the trans community. I think if there was a good answer to that question, the policy would already exist. <laughs> um, great answer or great non-answer. It is a great non-answer. Not that I'm trying to duck it. I just, yeah. again, you know, as a journalist in this space, it's my job to listen to everyone who has an opinion about this. And I do my very best to juggle all of those perspectives. And while I have my own guiding principles, I think that it is important to acknowledge that this is very messy and that I am not entirely convinced that there is a policy option that would satisfy everyone given the current climate that we're in. And I'm, I mean that politically. Um, And I think it's important to acknowledge the political climate because it is very much affecting the discourse on this issue in particular. 
And so, you know, we can have this conversation, right, about elite sport. And I think there are a lot of people who want to have this conversation around elite sport and say, that is all we're talking about. Yeah. However, there is also a truth that the conversation happening around elite sport is being used in legislation to affect non-elite sports. What I do feel comfortable saying is that it's important to consider level of competition mm. um, and the goals of that competition. I think yeah. what makes this particularly hard in the context of the United States is that our baseline recreational sport that is actually pretty competitive is in our school system. And so if we think about what it means to have non-discrimination policies within our schools, which I think most people would agree is a good thing, well, our high school championships matter a great deal to a lot of people Mm. and are really important things. You know, those experiences are very, very important, and I don't want to minimize those. Um, And also, if they are important, shouldn't we want all kids to have the opportunity to access those things and those experiences? It just becomes very difficult. And I try to acknowledge that difficulty because we're not just grappling with, you know, what does science say about a specific group of our athletes who represent the purest distillation of athletic achievement, right? Are at most elite athletes, our Olympians. We're not just talking about that. And the policies and the discussions around that particular group of athletes shows up in high school policies. Yeah. It shows up in legislation that affects not just um, not just like high school and college. You know, it affects elementary school kids. It affects intramural college competition, which you know, I I don't think that's part of the conversation that folks are really wanting to have. I don't think people are thinking about intramural flag football. Um, when we're talking about transgender athletes and their ability to compete and access women's sports in particular. And so it's just, it's a muddy, muddy mess is what I'm trying to say. So swept up in all of this legislation is the fact that they're lumping it all into one space. 100%. Why is that? Why can't they differentiate between the elite level of sports and the younger kids in sports and make it far more inclusive? I think that goes back to what I said originally about how there are many different conversations happening at the same time. I think there are a lot of people who are legitimately confused by their feelings on this topic and want to know how they can support trans people and also support women's sports while feeling like those things are in tension. And then I think there are also people who have no interest in supporting women's sports or trans people. Mm -hmm. And the arguments that folks make across all of those groups sound very similar to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so it creates a conflation when you're not being specific about what it is that we're talking about in different environments. Because yeah, I think you know, it'd be simple to have, to have, uh, well, frankly, to not have legislation that is so targeted in such a way to like that targets transgender kids at all ages, 
And I want to be very specific when I say this, like, this is not my opinion about what the legislation does is what the legislation says. Mm -hmm. Like I have personally read all of these bills. I've read all of the laws that have been enacted and the overwhelming majority of them either use specific language around elementary, high school, elementary, middle, high school, college, intramural, club athletics, et cetera. They either enumerate it very specifically or they use vague language and talking about school districts or schools um, and including colleges and sometimes including intramurals in that as well. And some of them will actually not just affect transgender girls and their ability to participate in girls and women's sports, um, but will affect transgender boys and their ability to participate in boys and men's sports, which if we accept the scientific premise that we have to talk about, you know, testosterone-driven puberty as it pertains to transgender women participating in girls' and women's sports, that is the assumption then, right, after that logic is, well, then transgender boys are no threat. Mm -hmm. So why is legislation affecting transgender boys? Mm -hmm. Um, And that is happening. That is the legislation as it stands in Alabama, Tennessee, um, and Texas. Um, And it was considered in Georgia. The legislation is very broad. And also, you know, I think underpins a definite legislative shift in how we talk about the greater LGBTQ plus community in general, in terms of access to healthcare for transgender youth, in terms of access to bathrooms for queer and trans adults. The bills that are and legislation that affect sports are part of a larger discussion around LGBTQ people and our ability to access. just like basic public functions. Um, And that's separate from Mm -hmm. a conversation that I think a lot of people want to have around elite sport and around women's sports, like well-meaning people. Um, But oftentimes they are treated as the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that has really damaging effects. What percentage, to your point earlier that it's getting lumped all together, um, what percentage of kids or teens are trans? Hmm. Do we know? And what percentage are them playing sports? So the number that has been used, you know, there's a study in 2018 and these numbers are changing. Like 2018 used to feel like yesterday. It's now four years ago. <laughs> um, so the CDC released a study in 2018 that said, um, you know, the percentage of uh, teenagers ages 13 to 17 that were trans uh, was 1.7%. Um, the percentage of- And that's teenagers, you said? Yes, teenagers. Okay. So high school students, give or okay. take. One, 1.7%. Yes. Okay. The percentage of uh, trans people that play sports is very low. We don't have a great estimation as far as the number. Um, you know, there's a study that HRC released, you know, five years ago that put the number for transgender girls at like 13%. Uh, candidly, that even that still feels very high to me. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, we can take a state like Utah, for example, where the when the Utah governor vetoed the legislation there, and then it subsequently was overridden by the legislature. So it did go into effect. But um you know, when the governor vetoed the legislation, 
know, he cited that 75 of the 75,000 kids playing high school sports in Utah, four of them were known to be trans. And of that four, one of them was a transgender girl. And so we're dealing with a really small number of young people uh, who are seeking to play sports, who are legislatively, that is becoming very difficult to do. And I should also say that it's not like in most of the country, it was easy for trans kids to access sports already. Like, you know, the high school associations, each state has its own policy and they vary widely. And a lot of them are relatively restrictive. Uh Um, You know, they are similar to the old NCAA policy, which requires a year of testosterone suppression, which in high school, you know, you don't get a medical red shirt, but you only have four years. And so also you'd have to access that level of care which in many states is also coming under fire. You have to do it at a relatively young age. You have to have supportive parents. You'd have to have resources in terms of um, your financial resources and medical resources to access that care. Um, So there's already barriers that exist uh, before a lot of this legislation has passed. Um, And a lot of the legislation is passing in states that already had consistent, I mean, pretty significant barriers to uh, transgender kids and young people being able to participate in sports in accordance with their gender identity. In some states, it was pretty much impossible. Um, meaning like, you know, there were states that have recommendations for surgery on young people before they can participate in sports, which is out of step with the standard of care. That's not what happens uh, for young people. So it's, um, that part of it is a real challenge, I think. What are we not discussing? What's missed in all of this? I think there's a real lack of empathy Mm-hmm. in the discussion in terms of understanding the perspectives that everyone is bringing to the table and how our own experiences in sports and our identities like fundamentally shape what we believe about this issue. You know, I think if you, know, you are somebody who competed at the absolute highest level in sports, right? You experienced that, like, I mean, you just, you're an elite athlete, like you're an Olympian, right? Like that's a very different experience from the rest of us. And and I think that's important in many ways in this discussion, right? Like for those who achieve the very highest levels in sports, especially in women's sports, I think oftentimes, you know, those women also experienced discrimination in a very acute way, right? Because you know what it's like to be the absolute best in the world at what you do and to still not have the same level of respect or resources as your male peers. Mm -hmm. And that's a very foundational experience Mm -hmm. and very unique in some ways. You know, like I know what inequality feels like. like, And when I reflect on my own sporting experiences, like I know I experienced inequality but it's not the same as, you know, being an elite athlete and experiencing that inequality. You just get to see it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's that. I also think there is, when I talk about like a lack of empathy, I think a lot of people are very focused on what it's like to walk in their own shoes and are not necessarily considering what that experience right. is like for another person. And I find that in order for us to hear each other, empathy and compassion is so important 
um, and how we have these discussions. But I also think that, I don't know, sometimes there are limits to what we can agree on. And in some ways, I'm very pessimistic on this issue (laughs) Um, in terms of just everyone that I've talked to, you know, there's a lot of overlap, but then where there are disagreements, those disagreements are, I I don't know if if they're able to be bridged. Mm. Uh, Leah Thomas said in an article for SI, I believe that I just want to show trans kids and younger trans athletes that they're not alone. They don't have to choose between who they are and the sport they love, which when you talk about the empathy behind it, it also, when we were talking to Glacia Clarendon, mm-hmm. who told us one of the things that people don't realize is, you know, they're not making a transition. Men are not assigned male at birth and making a transition to win medals, right. Mm-hmm. To, you know, set pool records. Like this is who they are. And we don't talk about how hard that is, that the humanity of that. Mm-hmm. And I think how much harder or just how, I mean, just how hard it's been in the last two to three years. Um. And, you know, and I say that, and I'm not saying that because there are, there are a lot of cisgender women who are very upset about, you know, their experiences um, in sports competing against transgender girls and women. And so I don't want to minimize, you know, what they've experienced and say that that doesn't matter. All people matter um, in this conversation. But I also think that sometimes when we are debating limb length and times and science and policy that we lose sight of of the human part of this and exactly who was affected by our words and i think that's something that i try and talk about is that like yeah there are very real questions to be and like conversations to be had around what policy is appropriate and what is fair and what is equitable, all of that is real. And also, does that mean that we should, that like legislation that affects elementary school is the appropriate response to that conversation? Mm -hmm. I don't know. And there are a lot of people who get mad at me for even saying that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, who will say this has nothing to do with 10 year olds. This has to do with science and data. I'm like, yes, I understand that that is a perspective that is that is real, and also that science and data is showing up on legislation on legislative yeah. floors. Like I, right? I was going to say, know, but the legislation doesn't show that. I mean, yes. it, it's showing a different story, right? And so it just it, it makes everything about this so emotional, yeah. and really, really hard. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I think it's why I try not to answer that many questions because there aren't really good answers. Um, You know, all I can do is just be honest. And uh, it's a very hard conversation. It's hard for me personally. It's hard for me professionally. And I know that that is shared by almost every person that I talk to. Do you have any 
sense or hope of what the future could look like for trans athletes? We didn't talk about this very much, but one of the things that I hope comes from this is an examination in all of the ways that people are non-compliant with Title IX, <laughs> uh, that institutions <laughs> are not compliant with Title IX, and more opportunities that well, and for girls and women to actually have the opportunities that they're entitled to under the law and the funding that they are entitled to under the yeah. law. Like, yeah. I would really like that to happen. Yeah. Um, and I the think big, that, the big neon blinking sign that we're missing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, what are we not talking about? There's a lot of inequity still out there. There's so much inequity. And, you know, in some ways, <laughs> I think like, I actually think it would be very good for everyone if, you know, girls and women just were able to access what they're entitled to under the law period, right? And, you know, ultimately, if that were to happen, then I think, like, maybe there would be less of, I don't know, just, like, less animus and hostility toward transgender athletes who are also trying to participate in sports. You know, where I hope we could go is just more opportunities for everyone. Like, I think it would be great to have more co-ed opportunities for sports at a younger age and for those experiences to last longer. Um, That's a great point. You know, like just, I think that'd be awesome. Like one of my favorite things in the Olympics is the, you know, we're seeing more co-ed relays, like mixed relays. We're seeing, you know, just like more mixed Mixed events. Bobsled. Yeah, like that's great. Uh I think that's a lot of fun. It it creates more like just different strategic thinking, um, you know, different exploration of like, who's good at what, like all of those things I think would be really great. Just more. I just want more. I want more for everyone. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be this place of deficit where more for one person means less for you. Um, it could be more for everyone. If we're able to get to that place, ultimately I think it would just be good for our sports culture. Like we know that fewer kids are playing sports. And I think we can all agree that that's not a great thing. And so if we know that sports is important for young people, for all of the reasons that it's been important for all of us in our lives, like I would hope that we would want all kids to be able to participate in sports. So that is like, that's a real thing that I would want to have happen. What that means for policy as it pertains to transgender athletes at high school, college, and elite level, I don't know. I think we're in for a really significant shakeup in the next two years. Like, I have no idea what the policies are going to look like, how they will differ, how they will hold up, um, who will be happy with them, who will not be happy with them. Yeah, that's a real, like, I can't even see the board. I have no idea what it's going to look like. Um, And I think to me, that's going to be really interesting. But you know, we're certainly at an important crossroads, I think, in terms of what that policy is going to look like and what that's going to mean for our sports and our sport culture moving forward. Mm. So appreciate you, Katie, your wisdom, your insight. I, I mean, this is a topic, as we said off the top, that is just so layered and nuanced and and honestly, very confusing. Um, and we just felt a larger conversation like this was so needed. 
our hope is it inspires more conversations and actually opens people's minds as well to what we just discussed at the end, the, the humanity often lost in the conversation and the debate. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. And for those who want to continue to have a conversation, I actually enjoy talking about this. So I'm always happy to have a conversation with anyone who wants to seriously talk about it. You can find me on Twitter. Katie said that out loud. I sure did. They are open to it. <laughs>